Hello and welcome to Matt Bites, episode 112. I'm Elaine Charles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, muzzling monkeys, beating a retreat and three strikes and you're out. But first, we heard from Alistair with a great tip. Hi team, a little feedback on the latest episode. Launchpad on macOS has one use I've found. <laughs> one, doing well then. When Alison Sheridan begs me for a review for her podcast, I open Launchpad to browse my applications far more easily than any finder view can manage to see if anything rates a review. I almost never launch from there, but it's definitely a good browser. I got in on the beta of Retrobatch and provided feedback on three areas I thought needed addressing. The developers got back to me to clarify a few things, implemented two of the changes within a week and put the third on their backlog for later consideration. Top stuff. I am loving that browser idea, the app browser. Me too. I've just done it. Yeah, I've just pressed F4 and there they all are. It is. It's a great idea, which reminded me of an OS. Do you remember the one with the fuzzy icons? The fuzzy icons, yes. The fuzzy oh, icons. You must remember it. I can, the thing is, I can't remember which OS it was, but they, they did an OS update and all the icons went fuzzy and you would not believe how annoying it was. So I'm loving that idea. Excellent. Um, Re-Retrobatch. The developers have been great with me as well. Um, we had a ball in the live session. I'll put a link in the show notes to the recording. And I'm actually using it far more than I expected I would because my original thought was, it's great. But I've already got two really good image processing applications that I use for things that Retrobatch can do. And I'd also got two more, more than capable file renaming applications. But Retrobatch has just been so much more efficient because you're using a single app and you can do the renaming and all of the processing and the watermarking and everything together. So I'm loving that. I'm loving it more than I thought I would. And I've sat and I've thought, hmm, Apple could have done something like this in Aperture. Adobe could do something like this in Lightroom or Bridge, but it's just not the same. So I've um, got to agree with you. It is a very, very good app and always great to hear from Yolister. We also heard from Evie. Extreme, extreme dedication to the MacBytes cause, evidenced by Evie. If you recall, and of course you do, we released the last show just as England were about to kick off in the World Cup semi-final. England's semi-final. What did she do? This was what she said. Watching the match with no sound on while I listened to MacBytes, but I'm laughing so much at the Three Lions MacBytes series sketch, I can't see the screen. Best yet from the MacBytes crew, lol. It didn't end there either. A little bit later she came back. If you've never heard a Matt Bites episode, you need to hear show 111, especially the end. I'm still laughing here, even after hearing it three times. It's an absolute classic. And that's even after the disappointment of England's exit from the World Cup. Well, we're so glad that you enjoyed the show, Evie, and it's always good to hear from you. Now, next, Graham. Our reminiscing about Mike's monkey box resonated with Graham. Graham had fond memories of his monkey box. Well, he was certainly paying less than we were. We were robbed. He says, uh, it was a tweet, wasn't it? He said, haha, I remember the Pace monkey box was much more resistant to break up than the Phillips monkey box. And because I worked for ITV, my subscription was £2 a month. I remember installing a humongous aerial in the roof trying to improve the signal. That does sound remarkably like here. I 
thought we had a pace box. I think it was a pace than, box, yeah. Rather than the Phillips. Mm. So technically ours should have been better, according to Graham, but clearly we're just too far from the transmitter. We are. And right now, which is Winter Hill, if, if you are familiar with transmitters, well, ours is Winter Hill, which is in Bolton. north of Bolton in a place called Rivington. Which you may have heard of, and you may be thinking, that's ringing a bell. It's on fire at the moment with the um, rather inclement weather we're having in the UK, by which I mean it's sunshining. Um, Rivington is on fire. So at the moment, we've still got a TV signal, but we, we may not down the line. But back to Graham. Graham has also got two new bears, and they are absolutely gorgeous. And as yet unnamed. But fear not, we had a suggestion. Obviously, Macbite Siri and Lady Siri. But it wasn't an instant yes to that suggestion, unfortunately. We had another. Brace yourselves. Elena Mike. Mm, when he heard that one, I think he was sorry he hadn't gone with the first suggestion. We're still waiting to hear from Graham in relation to what he settled on. Watch this space. But I have put a link to a picture of said new bears in the show notes. They have got to be seen. They are beautiful. In the last show, we mentioned a new toy from Microsoft, the Surface Go, which was a new tablet smaller than the original Surface and aimed squarely at the iPad market. You were interested, weren't you? I was. We only briefly mentioned the new Surface Go as it had just been announced by Microsoft about 20 minutes before we recorded. But since then, more information has come out about it, including the fact that it comes with Windows S pre-installed. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of Windows 10 S. No. Nope. Apparently, the S stands for security. And that's... Oh, hang on. I'll just need to fall off the chair laughing at that one. OK, carry on. <laughs> <clears throat> that security comes from the fact that it can only run Windows 10 apps from the Microsoft Store, so you don't get any rogue apps. As far as Office is concerned, that then limits you to either the mobile versions, which lack many features, or the MS Microsoft Store versions, which are also limited in functionality compared to the full 2016 versions. But using a free app from the Microsoft Store, you can convert your Surface to the full version of Windows. And this allows you to install any apps you like, and it's called Switch Out of S Mode. You'll need to search the Microsoft Store for it. But there's no going back to 10S. And I think the question is, why would you? Unless you need, want to do a new compave on the device. Why would you? Because I'm not doing anything with tech these days unless I have a get out of jail free card for when it all goes to hell in a handcart. Fair enough. Is this app that converts it, this switch out of S mode, actually from Microsoft or is it a third party thing? I believe it's from Microsoft. Um, I did a search for it on my Windows machine. I went into the Microsoft store, uh, but I couldn't find it, probably because my Windows 10 laptop is already on the full version, so it can't switch to something you know, that it's already on. So that's why I'm guessing it, it's not showing it to me in the store, but I believe it is from Microsoft. Well, obviously, I would have done the diligent thing and checked myself. But on my install of Windows, on said physical box, the App Store won't run. Well, it, it does briefly run. I just get a tantalising glimpse at it as it crashes. So I've never actually seen the store. 
I I was in in one of the, the the modes at one point of I really must fix that, and then as it started dragging on into the fifteenth hour, I thought, you know what, leave it, walk away, which is how I'm approaching a lot of tech these days. So I would have looked for it, but I I, I can't see the store. Moving on to Skype call recording, back in a hundred nine episode one hundred nine, we mentioned that call recording is coming to Skype, and now I've got a few more details about it. The feature is actually going to be built directly into Skype and it'll record audio, video and shared screens. Everybody on the call will be informed that the call's being recorded. And in most countries, that's actually a legal obligation. At work, we actually always tell people, or we're supposed to tell people, doesn't always happen, but we're supposed to tell people that we are recording the Skype calls. I guess that's a bit like the um, the customer service calls that says this call bait may be recorded for training purposes. I can assure you all of mine are. By you, yes. Yeah, not, not necessarily for <laughs> training purposes. I don't need training in handling them. <laughs> no. Should you say anything that, what's the phrase the coppers say? Maybe taken down in That's evidence and used against you, That's yes. And it works very well, <laughs> I'm happy to report. Yes, particularly with Apple customer service. I usually don't have to threaten them too much, but I have used my recordings on several occasions and um, I do usually get my own way. When someone, going back to, to what we do at work, uh, when someone hits record, a message pops up on everyone's screen to advise the call is being recorded. So I'm guessing that's what's going to happen uh, here as well. Now, when we talked about Skype recording in episode 109, we mentioned Skype's content creator mode. And this is still in preview. It also requires additional software to work, whereas what I'm talking about here is out-of-the-box functionality in Skype. Whilst the recording feature is great for, say, making a recording of a customer service call, which we've just been talking about, it may not be so great for podcasters and other content creators because the audio and the video from all the participants will be in a single track. Whereas if each person's track was uh, separate, the podcast producer would have more control over the mix and quality of the call or the interview. Uh, to be honest, that's pretty much critical. Uh, when I come to edit MacBytes, I have two audio files. One of you recorded on your Mac and a second one of me recorded on my Mac. And those recordings are made completely independently of how we actually hear each other. In fact, the last show, how we heard each other, was shouting through two closed doors, if you recall. Every platform we tried was just failing. Uh, we normally go with a phone call, so an O2 phone call. It just kept cutting out that day. It wasn't having it. And we were, what, 10, 12 yards from each other? <laughs> uh, so it was OK, plan B, Skype. Let's go on to Skype. That just wouldn't connect. Now, there's another thing that I know is very popular, especially amongst gamers, called Discord. So we tried it briefly once, hadn't we, just to test it. And it, it was OK. So it was a case of, OK, I got that Discord installed. Let's go there. That didn't want to know at all. WhatsApp we tried, that didn't even try to connect. I thought somebody must have installed a Faraday cage without telling me. But anyway, when I get the files, I adjust each track so the level matches as near as it can. And it's a nightmare if everything's recorded in a single track. There is software processing, but it's never as good as having the audio in separate tracks to start with. I would have thought it would be an option, 
And it might actually turn up as, as a paid offering from Skype. The other thing is the, the calls are stored in the cloud. And I can imagine the outcry about privacy with that. But I can see why they've done that, though. It solves a problem for having access to the same recordings on all your devices and platforms. So in a way, it makes sense. It does. And Mashable.com, which is where I read about this, has reached out to Microsoft for additional comment regarding the consent to being recorded using Skype's upcoming built-in call recorder. They're actually still awaiting an answer to it. So I think it's a case of watch this space for now on that. I'm wondering, you know, I know in our day... Uh... My mum and dad had a phone, but my gran didn't. She she refused point blank. I don't need a phone. There's a phone box around my corner. In those days, if you made a phone call and it was being recorded, it does make a great deal of sense that you are told about that and that you have to agree to it. It does. But, you know, when you say this now about getting consent for a recording, it seems prehistoric. Because if you think about younger people today, why do I have to give consent for that? That's fine. Because virtually everything's recorded. There's very little happens in the world that it doesn't get caught on a mobile phone camera these days. And it, it seems a little bit anachronistic to me. Mm. I can understand that they're going to be pushed on it and they're going to have to put it in. But I'm wondering if 10, 15 years down the line, it just won't be needed because it will just be accepted. That the assumption that, well, the presumption will just be flipped. I can see both sides. I can see that side. But, you know, privacy laws are getting tighter, GDPR and all that. There is that aspect to it. But again, it, I mean, that's just driven me mad. It's done the complete <laughs> yeah. opposite of what it should have done, where I should just be able to not be bothered. And now every site I go to has got 14 GDPR things on it asking me to agree. I, I have no idea what I'm agreeing to. I just want to see the site. Yes, 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 whatever. Because if you say no, you just get a blank screen. So I actually think that's done the opposite. I'm just thinking maybe just in practical terms, it will move on. Just a thought. Anyway, on to new toys. Fantastic news from Serif. Affinity Designer for iPad is live. It is an amazingly good implementation of the app on iOS. The launch price uh, has been $13.99, but it is moving to $19.99. Trust me, it is worth every penny and more. One thing that they've pushed is what hardware is supporting it. And all versions of the iPad Pro are fine. The iPad Air 2 is fine and an iPad from early 2017 onwards. Do you know, I can't remember, what year was the iPad Air 2 released? It must be, I want to say 2015, was it? Shall I have a look? You have a look for that. Um, because I, when I, I bought it, I had my iPad Pro in my hand, so I just installed it and away I went. But I have next to me my recent iPads, <laughs> of which there's five. I know. I'm just blessed. Um, I've got two iPad 12.9. So I've got revision one and revision two of those. So they're both iPad Pros with pencils. And then I've got three other iPads and they are my last three iPads, which is an iPad Pro 10.5 inch, um, an iPad Pro, I think, and an iPad Air 2 because I didn't have an iPad Air 1. So I'm not sure about what the middle one is. But anyway, and I read that and it just went into my brain and, and I didn't give it a second thought as I picked up each iPad and installed it. And actually, I think my oldest one is the iPad Air 2 uh, because I don't have just an iPad from 2017 onwards. I, they were all pros after that from 
I think it was 20, the autumn of 2015. Since then, I've only had iPod Pros and they've all been absolutely fine. And I can't discern a great difference in um, performance from them. So as long as you've got something from what year was the iPad Air 2? 22nd of October 2014. Yes, I did have that one. That was the one I got just as mum was taking poorly. So that is that's quite strange when you think about it. That is three years younger, uh, three years older, sorry, than an early 2017 onwards. That just shows you how crippled those normal iPads, you know, the cheap ones are. Yeah. Yeah. Tech that's three, three that years one. older. I've got, I've got the Air 2, but I got it in 2015. I got the Air 2 when it was released. It was replacing the venerable iPad Cyril, which was from 2012. So I'd waited two and a half years to upgrade my iPads. <laughs> Obviously, since then, I've gone crazy and had every one, I think. <laughs> but that's not the point. Um, so anything, if you had an iPad in 2014 onwards, you should be OK. Um, now, postscript to this announcement, within minutes of Serif's announcement, Adobe bringing up the rear as usual. Uh, at least according to Bloomberg, there was a story that they put out and I put a link in the show notes. They're, they are Adobe acknowledges, I'm going to quote this, Adobe acknowledges working on a full version of Photoshop for the iPad. I'll just let that sink in as you stop. Stop laughing. Uh, I'm going to file it in the someday maybe bin. I mean, how many different versions of half-cocked Photoshop for iPad implementations have they already launched, lauded and binned? I've lost count. So let's concentrate on Affinity Designer rather than the usual Adobe vaporware. When Photo for iPad was launched, I ran a few live sessions and they proved very popular. So we're going to do it all again with Affinity Designer. I'm going to be live on YouTube on the 14th of August, quarter to eight for an 8pm start. That's UK time. And the link is in the show notes. This app on iPad is so fully featured. It's almost unbelievable. When they announced a version of Affinity Designer for iPad, my initial reaction was wild excitement because I actually use Affinity Designer more than Affinity Photo. Uh, for, for the history of this, when I need to use Vector, I was using Illustrator. I know, the shame. And then Sketch came out and Sketch was amazing. Uh, luckily for me, just before it went subscription, which I can live with, what I can't live with is activation. Affinity, I, I decided to take all my sketch work into Affinity Designer and it felt very weird at first because when you look at Affinity Designer, it looks, as the name implies, very design heavy. But when you look at Sketch, it's got a much lighter interface, um, fewer options, fewer buttons. Obviously, it can do the same job. It's just its focus is slightly different. But I moved everything. I moved all of my UI and UX from Sketch and I, use, I moved all my uh, vector creation from Sketch. So I was thinking about Affinity Designer on iPad, getting quite excited. And then as I considered it, I thought, well, what do you do with it and how do you do it? And then I calmed down a lot and I figured it would all that what I did would all be too fiddly on an iPad. But I'm happy to report it isn't. It's different. The way you interact with it is different, but it's more than doable. And as if that wasn't enough, because by then I was giddy with excitement. Almost even better than all of that is the imminent arrival of a beta of Affinity Publisher for Mac and Windows. 
Now, I seriously can't wait for publisher. I've got so many jobs I should be doing in InDesign that I sneak off into Keynote to do just because it's a far better experience. Obviously, taking it into Keynote, not really got the legs to repurpose in quite the same way, but InDesign is horrible. So if you can join us at the live session, we would love to have you there. We usually have a great chat and um, you'll learn all that Affinity Designer can do. Now, also filed in the exciting bin, Apple managed some new hardware. I know it's amazing, isn't it? New MacBook Pros were announced without much fanfare, to be honest. And I thought strange so soon after WWDC. Why not just announce them at WWDC with the shipping a few weeks later? Possibly because there wasn't much to see in the way of changes. I did read a piece from a beta tester and I thought it was the most succinct overview. It gave a good insight into it. And uh, and this is what he had to say. I've been using Mac laptops for a long time, going way back to the very first portable Apple ever made. And I was really excited when Apple sent me a new MacBook Pro to test and review. It's a 15-inch space grey MacBook Pro and it looks just like the 2016 model I purchased about 18 months ago. But what's on the inside has had some big changes. The test unit came equipped with a 2.9 GHz Intel i9 processor with six cores, 32 gig of DDR memory and an AMD Radeon Pro 560X discrete GPU with 4 gig of GPU RAM. The 2.9 gigahertz CPU can turbo boost to 3.6 gigahertz. And if that's not enough for you, it can also thermal velocity boost to as high as 4.8 gigahertz, load and temperature permitting. So that's the technical side. But then he summarized. In summary, there's a lot to like about the 2018 MacBook Pro. It's made great strides in performance and runs alongside the iMac Pro for the single core and two to five core computations I benchmarked in this review. The increase in memory to 32 gig makes it a truly viable machine for my CFD workflows and the keyboard is more precise and quieter and the true tone display is a standout feature that my eyes appreciate every time I look at it. Overall, the 2018 model is a very solid evolution with improvements that emphasise the Pro in MacBook Pro. So that's what he had to say. That last line sounds like it was written by Apple's PR department to me, though, because the thing that struck me was I looked at the new ads and they are pushing the pro aspect of the MacBook Pro. Which I thought felt like a reaction to all the criticism they got last year. But then I I considered it and I thought, look, just saying it doesn't make it so. If you say we're pushing the pro aspect, you know, we put the pro into computers, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't mean it's a pro model just because you're saying it. And I'm still not hugely attracted to it. The more memory is great, the more power is great. What's not to to like? But for me, the form factor was still problematic. As I sat there and thought, do you want to buy this? What came to me was, no, the form factor, not great. I've got no use for the touch bar whatsoever. To me, it's in the wrong place and didn't it's just not needed it's not pro feature no 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 i've never used it i'll caveat that with i've never used it but when i think of using any of my kit and i think of how i interact with it if i use the touch bar on a laptop and then i get back to my mac and i adore my touch bar then i'm going to be annoyed it's not there so it's going to slow me down when i use other devices doesn't make sense to me at all 
And the lack of ports dents the flexibility and that in turn adversely affects productivity. It just doesn't seem to have moved on in concept for a good few years now. Other manufacturers have been forced to play catch up. And I'm wondering, do they really need to play catch up with this model? So personally, I'm not sold on it. I'm not sold on it either. If you look at the the best spec, it's far too expensive. In fact, I actually fancy a Surface. The Go? No, I'm seriously looking at the next revision of the Surface Pro. Professionally, I use Windows, Excel especially. I also use the other Office apps. And there's still not full parity between the Mac versions and the Windows versions. I did try a Surface. It was about three years ago at work. So it it was one of the earlier models, but it's very capable. The pen is great. And the top spec of Surface is cheaper than a mid-range MacBook Pro. I remember that. You brought it home. And I remember logging into... I did, and we played with it. I logged into my OneNote um, notebook and tried the pen. It was the pen that, that fascinated me. And it was. It was very, very good. It was before the iPad. Not long before the iPad, but it was before the iPad. So it must have been 2015 would be my guess. I'd, I'd reckon around the summer was. of 2015. And it was, yeah. it was very, very good. The thing that put me off was, you know, it was Windows and my software's on Mac. But who knows? I'm guessing the next revision will be in the autumn because there'll be new versions of Office as well. But back to the MacBook Pro. And most column inches seem dedicated to the new keyboard. Does it solve the problems of the previous model? Well, I have no idea. I've never used either. Well, they've added a membrane beneath the keys to stop detritus entering the mechanism. Really? Hmm. If they'd gone with my idea of a completely glass keyboard with haptic feedback, they wouldn't have that problem. They'd also have the benefits of being able to switch keyboard languages virtually instantly with no issues whatsoever, complete customization, and it'd be great for accessibility for people who, you know, for whatever reason, can't quite use a keyboard as efficiently as if they could just move a couple of keys. So maybe they need to target some of the massive air quotes courage they claimed they showed removing the audio jack from the iPhone and direct it at the MacBook Pro design team. Because my my only laptop, in fact, our only laptop, we share it now, um, is a MacBook Air early 2012. It's six and a half years old. Luckily, it is still going and I am touching wood as I speak. Because if anything happened to it, I really don't know what I'd do. Like you're saying, with with laptops, I always go for absolutely top of the line. Uh, I've only had personally two Mac laptops. The first one was a 2016. It was September 2016, 17-inch MacBook Pro, which I specced up as far as it could go. And it lasted me six years. Um, And that was from 2006 to 2012. 2012 was when I got my MacBook Air. With that one, uh, I I did get the best spec. I did. Obviously, it wasn't intended to be as powerful as a MacBook Pro from the same year. But I decided the portability was more important because dad was getting ill and I needed to run him around. So I, I got the best MacBook Air. But obviously, a MacBook Air is not a MacBook Pro. And it has been great. And it's still going after six and a half years. But when I look at the top spec of this thinking, well, pretty much if I buy a laptop, it's got to last me six years on past experience. I look at the price and think, are you kidding? I could literally buy a cheaper one every year for the next six years. So 
no, not sold. If they had put that keyboard on it, the one I'm talking about, that this this in my dreams keyboard with the haptic feedback, that would be pretty amazing because I can imagine that productivity wise, I can imagine making like a control surface for audio editing and video editing and it being the same keyboard. That is something that may tempt me off an iMac unless they made a haptic keyboard feedback thing independent. Oh, now I'm getting excited. Uh, yes, but no, no, I'm not having this and neither are you. So nice try, Apple, back to the drawing board. Let's start again. Apple give with one hand and take away with the other, though. So we have new kit from them and then RIP the photo printing service. Now, I'll be honest, I only used it once, but I loved it. I created a book. Uh, it was a hardback book. Did you remember that? I think it was the Christmas of 2012 or 13. Mm, and I remember it. It was a book that I created for mom after her last holiday. They'd gone on a sightseeing trip all over the country, really. And she'd visited Carnforth Station, which is where they filmed Brief Encounter. No, I've never seen the film, but apparently one of her favourites. Uh, she loved trains as well. So I'd got lots of pictures of trains. And I created the book and I added the story of the filming of Brief Encounter and all the details of the station. So because it wasn't just photos, I could actually add a story to it. It did, when, it, when I'd finished with it, it looked like a book that, you know, a coffee table book that you were going to Waterstones and buy. Other bookstores are available. So I uploaded it from iPhoto. And within the week, we'd got this beautifully presented book back. And as I say, it was a Christmas present. And she loved it. It was hardback. It had a paper dust cover on it. And it was in a box as well. I had never seen anything so perfectly printed and presented. I appreciated the tight integration between the software and the printing process because it meant I wasn't going to face the obligatory arguments I'd expect everywhere else if I sent it somewhere else. And I could imagine it. I, I was ahead of myself, you know, the wrong fonts, wrong colours, myriad other mistakes, damaged during transit, lost during transit. We've sent it via Yodel, you can imagine. All of that is bound to happen because now there's just no integration at all and I don't know where I'd go. I never used it. So to me, what you've not used, you won't miss. But I think if I had the need, like you, I'd rather have used Apple mainly for the integration of the service. But I think the only downside was the price. You needed a second mortgage to be able to afford it. And I reckon if they priced it more affordably, then more people would have used it. They would and then they wouldn't be bidding it. it. It is a very sad day. It just feels like Apple don't care about the whole integrated experience anymore. <laughs> Actually, the fact is they just don't care, plain and simple. My point about where I would go is I was able from the application that I was using, which was iPhoto, and you could do this in Aperture, to create the book with the photos, the layout, the text. I could choose, you know, a, a, a get started layout. And it was all on my computer and it was all completely integrated. And when I said I don't know where to go, I just don't have that anymore. Some of the services that they've suggested are US only. I've no real idea about any of the other service, um, services, how they work, where they're based, how long it would take to arrive, what the costs are, what services they actually offer. I have no idea. So it now feels like there's a chunk missing. Should I want to do that? And I know there are people out there that do that way more than I did. You know, I did one book. But 
that was the point with Apple. Years and years ago, they cared about the experience that I'd had with one book. If I had to recommend that to somebody, if somebody said to me, you know, I'd like to get this done, what would you recommend? I would in an instant have recommended that because of one good experience. And if I'd had the need to print out books, that's what I would have done. Now, we have seen books that, that people we know have had printed. I don't think they were anything like the quality or the base design that Apple had. So when I look at them, the fonts are horrific and the layouts are horrific. And you never know whether the person who's created the book, I'm deliberately not mentioning names here, had chosen Comic Sans. <clears throat> they did. I don't know if they chose it or if that was the base font that was there, in which case, you know, they could certainly do with a hand with a design. But you'd have to upload your photos to the service in question and then do the layout online, I'm assuming. And then maybe save it in case you want another book. I've no idea. But you know what? It totally puts me off doing it full stop. So not great. Not great. And now for a sad, sorry tale of tech woes. I should play a stinger there, but I can't think of one that's bad enough. Yes, calendars. Fast becoming the bane of my life. Nothing to do with me, obviously. It's everybody else's fault. And how did this happen? I'm sure life used to be much more simple. So I sat and I thought about it. Pre-2006, which was when we moved to a Mac, I had nothing shared. No shared calendars. I used Outlook on Windows desktop and that was it. Mm, me too. I even seem to recall, this is shocking, having separate calendars on my mobile devices. Now, my mobile device back then meant a Sony Cli or Clee. I think it's a Cli. And I pretty much only put the really big stuff on mobile. I relied on my desktop. My desktop was definitive. But I found Outlook wasn't the most reliable. I didn't have an exchange server situation going on, which meant I had to rely on PSTs. Uh, a PST, what, what does that stand for? Is it personal storage file? Personal storage file, yeah. Yeah. It, it is basically uh, a database file that is proprietary to Outlook that stores calendars, email, to-dos, contacts, the whole bit. And you could close one PST down and open up another PST, or you could have multiple PSTs open at once. But the fact there was no server was the bit that caused the problem. Because of the amount of mail I was handling, and, and remember back in the day, it was pop mail, so it downloaded to a single device. This is like prehistoric, isn't it? Um, I needed to create a new PST every month. If I didn't, and I just carried on adding a month two and month three and month four into a single PST, everything ground to a complete halt. So 2006, moved to a Mac. I had no intention to move to a Mac completely. I was expecting my mail and all my calendaring to stay on the Windows machine. And at first I felt iCal, um, the address book, and the mail triumvirate was fragmented. It lacked task tracking too. Uh, there, there was no, I mean, now you've got reminders, but back then, anything that I had in Outlook, if I thought about my tasks and moving the whole lot, contacts, mail, appointments and tasks over to the Mac, there was nothing there for the tasks. So I was put off doing that. That was my initial thought. 
Outlook was great as a concept, but more of an idea than something eminently usable in anger. It felt dangerous to rely on it, really, didn't it? Yep. Like it would vanish from under you at any point. I did love the concept, though. And it was one of those apps that always demoed well at a Microsoft event. And I went to those about once a quarter. And I would always leave thinking, do you know what? I'm going to give it another go. I'm going to go all in with Outlook. I'm going to give it another a go. Mm, then reality would hit. Exactly. So after a couple of months, I embraced the simplicity of Apple and went with all the built-in apps. And I learned to love the focus of dealing with a single element of what Outlook lumped together. And I, I've stuck with that. So between 2006 and 2018, that was my basic system. I moved from mail to various other email clients. Airmail stuck for a while, loved the interface. Uh, Postbox stuck for a while. In the end, I settled on Spark. And then iOS arrived. And there were lots of options there. Do you remember when we very first got our iPhone 3Gs? Our mail was already on Google, so we, it, it wasn't in iCloud. And there was that inbox, inbox, inbox thing. Should we say that again after three? Okay. One, two, three. Inbox, inbox, inbox. inbox, inbox. inbox. <laughs> Let's just say it was an adventure. Uh, what happened was you, you told the mail client which mail service you were using. And in, it then started to load them in. But because Gmail was different to everything else, you needed to tell it where the inbox was, which I did. At which point it moved it and it nested it under a folder called inbox. So I'd go back and say, no, no, it's there. That's the inbox. At which point it would be inbox, open, inbox, open, inbox. In the end, I thought, just leave it. Just just accept that's where it wants to be and leave it. Or you will end up with inbox, 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 inbox. So great experience, not. But hence me settling on Spark. But it did all calm down and I was OK. I mainly use a browser for mail, but I've also used Outlook for Mac uh, in, in some of the later years. Well, iCal was supplemented very early on with BusySync for Calendar Sync. And it's amazing to think now it didn't do sync out of the box. Then Busy Mac released BusyCal and it was love at first sight. And I've stuck with that from the day of release. At some point along the line, I added Busy Contacts as soon as it was released. But I actually use that less because I, I don't have the need to constantly triage contacts. I don't know if you do. No, I, I don't. Very rarely do I triage contacts, but I use BusyCal too. It's, it's a great app. I love it, like you. The biggest crisis during those years, 20, uh, 2006 to 2018, were the constant enforced updates by Apple. First of all, there was the, the dot .Mac to mobile me transition. Then there was the mobile me to iCloud transition. Then there was the biggie, the iCloud to iCloud 2.0 transition. And each one, apart from the fact it was forced upon you, was fraught with more potential peril to a complete complex calendar configuration than the one before. One of them was so serious, people had done it way before me, that I did at least 50 dry runs with secondary accounts just to make sure that everything came across. I didn't lose anything. And it's quite difficult with a calendar to be 100% sure you've not lost anything because you might look at this month and think that looks fine and do it. OK, not a problem. Everything's working. Six months later, you might be thinking, what did I do last March? And then look at it and think half of it's missing. 
it's very difficult to go back, you know, even like do a count of stuff. It's not like moving documents. So it was very, very difficult. With that one, even after all these dry runs, and I was pretty confident, I still left it until the absolute death. And if you remember, Apple was sending out reminders to do this transition before they did it for you. About every week in the last few weeks, and then it got to a couple of days, and then it got to every day. And at that stage, I was thinking, you're going to have to do this. Just go do it. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to leave it till the last day. And I'm going to see if they start sending mails every hour. And they did. (laughs) So I left it till about six hours before the deadline. And overall, what we had worked, and I did manage to transition it with no great loss, to be honest. We, We had extended beyond iCloud calendars, though, hadn't we? We'd added a Google-hosted calendar for integration with Zenkit. Um, Zenkit is an app that we use. It's a Kanban system and it can link into a calendar, but Google was the only option. So we had no choice. We went with it. And someone was being unfaithful with a sneaky Google calendar of their own. But more on that later. Anyway, the three strikes. Niggles we could cope with, but they were magnified beyond belief with separate incidents. Strike one. A while back, there was a week-long crisis with iCloud calendars. Um, They were sinking when they felt like it, pretty much. Which wasn't often. It was a complete nightmare. It actually brought into sharp focus just how much I rely on my calendar system. I was actually seconds away from leaving iCloud calendars for Google, when it all calmed down. And it does seem very strange that most people could probably live without a calendar. It was at the time, I I actually use my calendars a lot more now, but back then it was appointments with clients. It was sessions that I was doing online. You, You cannot afford for them not to be correct. It's as simple as that. I think if you, if you, I mean, they've done it before. They did it with um, the address book. Do you remember when all the names disappeared? Yeah. And you were just left with numbers and it was like, I have no idea who that is. I better ring them and say, hello, who are you? (laughs) That was bad. And you don't think calendars would be as bad. But the fact is, it is. And after that incident, I was just, it it was an issue of trust. I was so wary after that incident. You have to trust your calendar. At best, it's inconvenient, but at worst, you could be litigated against for not being able to fulfil commitments that you were convinced you'd put on your calendar but hadn't synchronised and had just disappeared into the ether. So, strike two. The great iCloud calendar spam debacle of 2016. Now, the architecture of Apple iCloud calendars meant that appointments could be added directly to your calendars with spam links in them. Well, actually, they could be added anyway. But somebody got the bright idea of doing it and adding spam links. Now, within days, it wasn't just my calendars that were stuffed with them. I think everybody's was. And there was actually no viable way to stop it. There was no option to delete them without the sender knowing that the email that had received them was active. And were Apple on it fast? Well, not fast enough, that's for sure. There was a hideous workaround that I put in place. Um, I found some notes online and I thought that won't work. And then I thought, but just a minute, if I added another calendar and I did this and I did that. So I put together this hideous, dirty hack involving a trash calendar and making that trash calendar hidden and the default. And then you toggled it off and hoped for the best. 
that was as good as it got. At the same time, the same thing was happening with Apple Photos, but that's a whole other story. But even though that had happened, and I know it happened to you as well, didn't it? It did, yeah. And we put in place the trash calendar thing on yours mm. as well. Obviously, the, the big problem with that is the trash calendar for that to work has to be your default calendar. So where, whenever you are adding something to your calendar system, you've got an extra step to make sure it goes anywhere but the trash calendar. Because if it goes there, you're not going to see it. Dangerous. But still, we stuck it out, though. Strike three. Apps. First off, BusyCal unilaterally made changes to their colour system. Now, that sounds so minor. Believe me, it wasn't. One of my reasons for having separate calendars is to have the appointments on those calendars in different colours. I don't know if you do it solely for that purpose. Um, the United one's red, but the others don't really have a preference. My United calendar's red, but I do have different colours just so I know that they're different things. So, for instance, my personal calendar is blue, my work calendar is green. And I instantly know whether it's something that I can move with only myself to answer to, which it will be if it's blue. But if something's on the green calendar, I need to deal with that in relation to somebody else before I can. I can't unilaterally change things on there, generally speaking. So the colours for me are incredibly important. And BusyCal was great with colours. It was actually better than iCal and, and, and Apple Calendar. Because Apple Calendar and pretty much every other calendar system I've ever seen will let you show the colour of the calendar as a dot. But BusyCal took it a step further and let you change the text of the appointment to the colour of the calendar. And then behind that, there was a background of a slightly different shade of the colour of the calendar. So let's think about that work calendar. There would have been a very deep bottle green title and behind it, a lighter shade of green for the duration of the appointment. And it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. It wasn't the default. You had to go in and change it in the preferences. But I did that. That was the first thing I did every time. And they changed it. Mm. So what was happening was the colours were completely dull. I opened an update and it was a random update. It was just, you know, install this performance changes. I installed and I opened the calendar. I thought, what have you done? You know, all the calendars have changed colour. They hadn't. They, you know, my personal was still blue and the other was still green. But they had changed their interpretation of what that shade of blue meant and what that shade of green meant. And my problem was I had orange, red, maroon and brown. And they all looked different and I was happy with them. And on, uh, on this implementation, they all look the same. Not pleased. Right. The second thing that they did was that weirdness happened with copy and paste. So we're still with BusyCal. Um, you used to be able to copy an event and paste it somewhere else. So if I had an appointment, a dental appointment, say, and I'm in March, I could go and I could copy it, move on four months, six months and paste it in and everything would go with it. All of the location details, the dentist's name, the contact, the whole thing. It was great. And they changed it. You could copy an event and then move to the new time for it and hit paste. And all you got was text added to the title field and weird text at that. It said in it something like um, copied appointment and then the details. And I thought, well, 
where's the map reference and where's the address and where's this? And it, it wasn't there. And I thought that is worse than useless. Now, they may argue that you can go to Monthview and you can hold the option key down and drag an appointment somewhere else and you will get a copy of it. Awesome. Did I mention I want to paste it four months later? That it will, won't do. I can't drag it four months away. So I'd have to drag a copy of it and then move it to the end of the month, move on a month, move it to the end of that month, move on a month. It, you are playing with my workflow and not in a good way. Then they broke multi-day event view. This hasn't been right since version two. What do I mean by this? When I have an event that goes over a couple of days, so maybe I'm putting an event on there that is a, a conference, a three, four day conference. It puts a banner at the top of those four days and there it sits. And I can happily see that WWDC is on for those five days or something else is on for three days. Work great. But I have a lot of appointments in a day. So on my calendar, I will have my personal calendar. I will have my work calendar. I will have Mike's work calendar. I will have other stuff we are doing. So it's quite frequent in month view that I may have on one particular day, 20 different appointments. So there's this huge list and at the bottom of it, you have to scroll to see the rest of them. I don't mind that. I'm happy to scroll. What broke from version three onwards was that multi-day event across the top. It disappeared just on the one day that you're scrolling. So now I'm looking at it and instead of seeing a band going across four days, one of the days like day three has disappeared. So I've got the beginning of the band and the end of the band and nothing in the middle of the band. That's an error because it wasn't doing that on previous versions. That is broken. Anyway, the final straw was a support ticket regarding all of those issues. First point, why is multi-day broken? Second point, what the actual have you done with the colours? They are muted. They all look the same. So I made the point that the orange, brown, maroon, red all look the same. And the answers came back to me. First of all, multi-day support. It's not broken, it's you. Really? Great customer support. And the answer to the second one, which was about the colours, we prefer it that way. I'll say that again, just in case you missed it. Answer to a support ticket. We prefer it that way. Hey, Mussolini, how about an option? I don't appreciate being forced to take on board your preferences above my own. Just give me the option. Secondly, Spark for iOS broke. Now, what's that got to do with my calendars? Well, the iOS version of Spark, which is a mail client, hooked in to the iOS calendar, which was great. Now, when you, they added calendars to the Mac version, they changed the mechanism that Spark used to do that. And that broke my access to my own calendars on iOS. Now, I will admit that is my fault. Massive air quotes again, because I have my mail on Google. We're back to the legendary two Apple IDs problem. One of my problems was that Outlook would never show iCloud calendars unless you had an iCloud email address. So I was actually secretly pleased that you were feeling my pain. Really? Well, now I am. And I was so knocked with all concerned, I decided to do something about it. Now, option one, I could have added an email address to my primary Apple ID, which it doesn't have at the moment. I don't need another email address. 
I don't want another email address and I don't want to risk changing anything with my primary Apple ID. Long gone are the days when it all just worked. That's just a distant memory from the halcyon times of Apple Utopia. So I wasn't about to do that. That left me with, now I'm assuming everybody understands what's going on at this point. The reason I can't see my calendars is that I need to log into my Apple account. And the reason I can't log into my Apple account is that it's using the email address of my Google account and no email account application can handle that. No calendar thing seems to be able to handle that either. So that was what the problem was and why this adding an email address I was promised could solve it. Personally, thought it was going to cause more problems than it would have solved. So option two, I could move my calendars away from iCloud to Google with my email hosting, which was looking more appealing by the minute. I had actually seriously been contemplating this for a while, which was when I discovered you already had your personal calendar on Google. I did. What happened was that uh, people send me meeting invites. These training companies that I do work for, they send me um, meeting invites and it comes into my email, which of course is hosted on Gmail. And all I have to do is click yes to accept the invite. And then it puts it straight into my calendar. And because it's going into a Gmail mailbox, it just sticks it on my Google Calendar that comes with that Gmail account. So I just decided it made more sense to actually have the Gmail, the, well, the Google Calendar as my primary personal calendar. So that's where we're at. We want to hear from you. How do you lovely MacBiters deal with calendars? Is it just me that seems to spend my entire life fighting the tech? Probably. Thank you. Seriously, get in touch with details of your setup and we're going to catch up with the Great Calendar Transfer Project of 2018 in the next show. But onward. You know that age-old mantra about if it isn't broken, don't fix it? Google struck again, you mean? They did. They have completely redesigned the interface of Chrome. It is not good. This new design is currently in Google Canary. Now, Canary is the testbed for the release stream of Chrome. So it's called Google Chrome Canary. Now, if you want to know what monstrosities are awaiting you in future versions of Chrome, you can install Canary today. Yet again, they are ruining the desktop for the sake of mobile and touch. It might work if we had a touchscreen Mac but I doubt that very much. And the golden rule, this is Elaine's golden rule number one. If mobile needs a dedicated design ideology, so does the desktop. What they've done is they've made, this is the least of it, they've made the tabs fractionally bigger, which has thrown me off enough to be annoying. It's a few pixels, but it makes such a huge difference. This is similar to the Fiori over the office ribbon back in the day. And I know people who retired rather than use it. Well, that's me with Chrome. I don't know what the fuss is about. Maybe I've missed something, but looking at Canary, there's two differences that I can see. The slanted size of the tabs have gone and the URL bar has round edges. Now, as a non-designer, a non-aesthetic person, I guess I'd say I'm indifferent. If United started playing in blue, I might have something to say, but changing the angle of a tab side, 
not really a major crisis, is it? The other thing that I noticed was a plus button for a new tab, which I do actually like. Even though I often do Command and T, just as often I use the mouse and having the plus sign instead of a blank tab is actually quite nice. One of the things that I read, someone said the new tabs are way too big and they take up too much vertical space on non-touch devices. Well, on my non-touch iMac, they take up the same space vertically and because the sides don't stick out, because the slants have gone, they actually take up less space. And yes, I have measured it. I can assure you it does take up more vertical space. I measured it too. Oh, no, it doesn't. Yeah, oh, it does. It <laughs> does. It's behind you. It does. Now, the slanted tabs might leave little gaps. So, so they're like... Um, they're slanted, aren't they? But one overlaps the other. But yeah. because of the slant, there's a, a fraction of a gap between them. And those small gaps means you can click and grab the title bar and move it. So, OK, I'll give, I'll give you that one because I'm well, doing it now. I, 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 I'm sat there with Canary and I just instantly did what I always did, which is, you know, grab for an area between the tabs. There is no area between the tabs. So as soon as I click and pull, I've actually pulled a tab away. It just rips the tab off. Yeah, I've I've now I've now got three different windows. <laughs> Try. Thank it. you. I told you. <laughs> anyway, the short version is they moved my cheese, and I'm not happy. That's never wise. It's enough to make me seriously look at making Firefox my default browser. I'll believe that when I see it. Anyway, on to something more positive. Um, long time issue for me working with clients who use Microsoft Publisher. I know the shame. It's what they know. And believe me, I will be recommending Affinity Publisher as soon as it is out. But in the meanwhile, I finally have a solution for viewing native publisher files on a Mac. Up to now, the easiest way I'd found was these online conversion services. But I don't like those because one, they want your email address and two, you know, these are client files that I don't know what's in them till I can see them and I can't see them till I've uploaded them. Um, so I installed LibreOffice for a completely different reason that I've totally forgotten. Age is a terrible thing. <clears throat> I downloaded the latest publisher file, ready to stick it in OneDrive to open up on my PC. So this had arrived from a client and that was my usual workflow. When I noticed the browser offered to open it for me. So I'm muttering to myself, I'd like to see you try. When I realised it had picked LibreOffice for the job, well, I was willing to give it a go. So I clicked OK with very low expectations. To my immense surprise, it wasn't at all bad. I had got complete fidelity on three of four pages. This was a four page document. And the last page I could forgive because it has a table on it. And this table um, has got date information in it and it's rotated 90 degrees then. So if you can imagine these four pages being printed out onto one A4 sheet and folded in half, the back page, you have to turn it sideways to read it just the way it's always been. Now, the table was there, but it wasn't rotated. But you could certainly use this to view publisher files. And because you've got it open, you could copy stuff out of it as well if you needed to. I found you could change the text and the layout. The limitation was when you came to save the file. It needs to be saved as a LibreOffice file. 
But it's handy to know as the other ways I've tried are a complete nightmare. So little tip there for you. Before we head on to um, Reality Bites, and oh boy, it did. CDs are still in demand, despite Apple's stake through the heart years ago. And that is not always a good thing. Lockdown tech is a right royal pain. And here's the tale of how Bluetooth and lightning only audio caused a near calamity. We were heading off to a one-day retreat. Think time for peaceful contemplation. Taking a break from the increasing craziness of this world. She means a navel-gazing session. If you like, but there wasn't much time for you to relax, was there now? Moving swiftly along. Quite. So, we arrived. Beautiful location. Tranquil. Peaceful. Birds singing. Trees swaying in a gentle cooling breeze. Bliss. And then we walk in. All hell broke loose. I was greeted with, thank God you're here. The music isn't working. One of the session hosts was having a problem with a CD. Burnt this CD back in the office. Tried it in the computer attached to the projector. It didn't want to know. So multiple dedicated alternative CD players had been summoned before we arrived. I didn't know people still had those, you know. You know the big things about the size of a rugby ball with a handle? I know the ones, yeah. They're the ones, yeah, mum had one. Those. And this CD was not having it. And it was the only one he had with him. Now, the original music was bought in iTunes. So, simple solution. Install iTunes on the presenter's PC. Log in with the session leader's account. Download the tracks. Simples. Well, it would have been. But the PC was locked down. You could download iTunes, albeit slowly, but it did it. Installation, no chance, no IT on site. Now, I would have been more expressive with my language, but since the PC in question was actually in the chapel, I thought better of it. So I hiked back to the meet and greet area whilst contemplating alternatives. And the easiest option was simple. Download the music to the session leader's phone and hook that up to the audio system. Problem? It was an Android phone. Well, that was me right out of my comfort zone there. Still not an issue. I had my phone. I had data. I had Spotify. And? No joy. The tracks weren't in there. So plan B it was then. I had my Apple ID and I had store credit. All I needed to do was find the music. Buy it, download it and hook up my phone to the audio system. What could possibly go wrong there? Ask a silly question. Too right. First issue was there were about 50 versions of the track that was required. We found it eventually after hearing the first 30 seconds of about 30 different versions, I might add. But we found it. I bought it. I downloaded it. It played. Problem solved then. Not so fast, boy. I hopped, skipped and happily jumped my way back to the chapel with the session leader to test it. Blissfully unaware of impending calamity. Yes, that was when disaster struck. He was stood there with a 3.5mm jack and I was stood there with an iPhone 7 Plus. Without a dongle. I seriously contemplated sticking pins in an effigy of the Apple logo, but I didn't even have time for that. 40 attendees were rapidly making their way to our location. 
I had no iPad. I had no MacBook. If you'll recall, this was supposed to be a get away from it all. Re-energise yourself by immersing yourself in a peaceful environment and cutting the cord with modern technology for a day session. Before we go any further, let me just say never again. Where I am, my tech is going to be all of it. I contemplated the Bluetooth option. No chance. It would have worked with a Bluetooth receiver, but I didn't have one of those either. Fate was on my side, though. I did have my old iPhone 6 Plus with me, replete with a very useful 3.5mm jack socket. Not as simple as plugging that in, though. I use it as my spare phone, so emergencies or locations where O2 doesn't work. It's actually on Vodafone. Don't ask. You all know how much I love Vodafone. Not. But this phone doesn't have mobile data, which was a bit of a showstopper in these circumstances. I quickly formulated a new plan. I enabled the cellular hotspot on the iPhone 7 Plus, connected the iPhone 6 Plus to it, and downloaded the tracks again. Now, Bear in mind, I've not used Apple Music for years, so that was an adventure all in itself. I grabbed the end of the proffered cable, stuck it in the fantastically useful headphone socket, and boom, we were done. Now, I did have to sit at the front of the session, curling myself into a ball to try and go unnoticed, whilst pressing play at just the right moments. So, a completely successful getaway from it all day, then. Yeah, like I said, never again. Now, I know they included a dongle with the iPhone 7 Plus, but who carries that around with them all the time? Does anybody do that? Anyway, as if that wasn't enough, I have just had a phone call imploring me to fix an errant CD burner. It's like the late 90s have called and want their technology back. So you'll give us an update on that next time then? I guess so. Joy. Have you conveniently forgotten the tech incident at the gin tasting night related to all of this? I was getting there until you mentioned it. Wasn't my tech causing trouble this time, though, was it? We'd arrived in good time for the annual gin tasting event. If you'll recall, I'm teetotal, but but it was a close thing this time. It was a little quiet early doors, so the organiser asked if we had any music on our phones. I inquired if he meant on our phones or access to it via our phones. He didn't care. As long as some 80s tunes serenaded the new arrivals, he was fine. So I was about to head over there when I recalled I was on photo duty with my phone. So I sent you. Which was fine until I got there and discovered the same issue that you'd had on the retreat. Mm, A 3.5mm jack cable in one hand and a subdued iPhone sporting a useless lightning port in the other. Lesson clearly not learned from the first time. In seconds, we were back to the mobile hotspot Bluetooth shuffle. Both of my iPhones pressed into service while you did the rounds for the photos. Please note, that left me without a phone all night. Clearly, two iPhones are not enough. The next person who asks why I have so many devices will be lucky to escape unscathed. I'm seriously contemplating taking my iMac everywhere with me, just in case. So, is the lightning adapter now attached to your person all the time, then? Hang on there, boy. Was yours with you? Domestic. Just a minute. It was your useless illuminated backside that caused all the bother. That's cruel. I'm hurt. Oh, I can assure you, you very nearly were. Actually, I did see a keyring attachment to allow you to carry the required dongle with you easily. Brilliantly called the Uncourage. You'll doubtless recall Apple's claim they had the courage to remove the headphone jack. 
Courage isn't the word I'd use. Cross stupidity is more accurate, but I digress. Um, shows you I'm not alone, though, as demand has been so high they've had to suspend sales while they catch up for filling back orders. But maybe more on that in the future. I've had an idea. Look forward to it. Well, now it's time for our next instalment of the MapBytes 10, where we take a look at one of the operating systems. And this time it's Mountain Lion. 16th of February 2012 was a date that we'll never forget. Whilst it was pouring with rain outside, we spent the entire day sitting in the car in a vet's car park whilst our boy was undergoing tests. We took him in at 8.30 in the morning and it was over 12 hours before we got him back. Wherever Mayer was, we were. So instead of going home, we waited in the car with our iPads, our iPhones and our MacBooks. And he would have been released. Yes, it was a bit like a prison earlier, but he wasn't allowed out until he'd eaten something. Well, I won't say he was well fed at MacBytes HQ, but the tinned dog food on offer was just not up to the mark compared to the handmade gourmet food his grand supervised production of at home. And he refused point blank to eat for over 10 hours. We had visions of him having to spend the night there. Given that the place cost more than the Ritz for an overnight stay, none of us would have been eating for weeks had that proved necessary. Anyway, why are we telling you this? What's this got to do with Apple? Well, it was while sitting in the car scrolling through our Twitter feed that Apple announced the next version of OS X was to be called Mountain Lane. No fanfare, no press event, and sadly, no MacBytes Live. As for the OS itself, this was the operating system where Apple dumped the I. Goodbye iChat and iCal, hello messages and calendar. There were other name changes too as address book became contacts. And we also got OS X versions of popular iOS apps like AirPlay, Reminders, Notes, Notification Center and Game Center. Oh Remember joy. <laughs> I, I'm not likely to forget it. Oh, pro no. tip with that. Do you want a pro tip? I inadvertently stumbled across it in the accounts section on my High Sierra machine the other day. And I looked and it was imploring me to log in. And I thought, yeah, that's not happening. So I clicked the cancel button. You know when it comes up with, with the, do you accept the terms? Yeah. I said no. <laughs> I thought, ha, gotcha. And it, it deleted it. It vanished. <laughs> Results. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, carry on. I like that. I'll try that one. Mountain Line also gave us share sheets and the ability to share almost anything with third party services such as Twitter and Facebook at the click of a button. Although, to be honest, I always use a Twitter client and for Facebook use the web. By the way, digressing slightly, according to something that I read, those sharing options are being uh, removed in Mojave. And I'll put a, a link in the show notes to that. Is this just... To, to the socials, or is it the whole concept of sharing being removed? Um, I think, well, from what I've read, um, just to the socials. Oh, that's fine. I just don't want my useful stuff removing. Mm, but um, that's I'm saying according to what I've read. There's the caveat. Mm, you mean it's all rumour and speculation? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mountain Lion was actually released on the 25th of July, and as with Lion... It was only available from the Mac App Store, priced at $19.99. Yes, we really did have to pay for Apple OSs once upon a time. Did you know that you can still buy Mountain Lane? No, I had no clue. 
I googled OS X Mountain Lion to do some research for the show and the top hit was a page on Apple's website where you can buy a code and they'll send it to you by email and you then redeem the code in the Mac App Store. So I, did I download and install it on that hot summer's day in 2012? I honestly can't remember but I doubt it very much. I was probably still running Lion as we entered 2013. Well, I thought I'd be able to tell you exactly what I did on Mountain Lion Day, because that agonising day back in February when we were worried sick about Mayor all day was the day I started using day one as a journal, and I've used it every day since. And I've never really gone back to the very beginning. Everyone else might be surprised that on the 16th of February, there wasn't so much as a mention of Mountain Lion, but I did make two short entries. The first one was just me saying how the wait for our boy to return was agonising, and the second one was even shorter and said he's home. Uh, but I did find more joy in my journal about release day. I did the download thing again. I was still on that 10 meg connection from B, but I, by then I'd prized the faceplate off the socket and I'd managed to coax two more meg out of it. When you think about it, that's a 20% increase back then, isn't it? Um, it wasn't much faster than downloading Lion. Sadly, it took even longer. I don't think Apple had, had got this download thing cracked, to be honest. The usual crew on Twitter were trying to do the same thing and no one was having any more luck than I was. But eventually I had it and guess what? Guess where it went? Go on. That venerable 2009 24-inch iMac with the infamous black back. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder that poor thing gave up the ghost. I think it heard there was another incoming update. It was like, no, I am not having another OS. <laughs> Sadly, it's demised now. RIP, the poor thing. Looking back at some of the other features, yes, it's that long ago I had to do some research. There was something called a power nap, which sounds like something that I need on a daily basis. But what it allowed you to do, it allowed MacBook Pros uh, with Retina display and the newest MacBook Airs to send and receive data whilst they're asleep. Do you know, mine barely cope when they're awake, much less when they're asleep. <laughs> the idea was that they'd be able to back up Time Machine, download software updates, sync your iCloud photo stream, Contacts, mail, notes, reminders, sync documents in the cloud, register their location with Find My Mac, and more, all whilst asleep. And the fans don't even turn on. Well, Mountain Lion also brought us dictation, which was a way to convert spoken text to written text, something else I've never used. I've tried it and it's pretty accurate. And I know some people use text to speech all the time. I have tried it. You know, maybe like blog stuff. It's not for me. I guess I just type too fast to bother with it. And I also love to fly around my Mac with copious shortcut keys. So I think for me to try and give it instructions to say to switch from one up to another would just, just slow me down. On the whole, I think Mountain Lion was an improvement on Lion. Uh, being honest, it couldn't really have been worse, could it? We're back to the odd numbers not being the best. Um, 10.8 fixed stuff they broke in Lion, basically. I'm assuming you did eventually do the Mountain Lion thing. I did in the end, yeah. Probably about six months later. Yeah. That was quite fast by comparison to me today. Anyway, today's Good But Gone is close to my heart. We look at my beloved wave. You don't still miss it, do you? Yep. It was one of those things that just worked. 
Interesting to think back to how it was rolled out, though, and what happened. If you remember, don't see it too much now. There was a trend of launching services in strictly limited beta, usually involving invitation-only access, known as invitation-only preview. And that started the 30th of September 2009, and it really, really ramped up the hype. Trouble was, it also set high expectations, and the expectations proved to be so high, virtually none of the services that launched that way survived for that long. Now, our Google accounts are apps accounts. Um, that used to be known as apps accounts. I think they're called G Suite accounts now. The upshot of that is it takes much longer for additional services to trickle down to corporates. So the hype was dying down nicely by the time we were able to even take a look at it. And it was love at first sight for me. But then I had a problem looking for a solution. And most people had a solution in the form of Google Wave, but no problem to solve. So most of the growing criticism Wave faced was people's lack of anything to do with Wave that other more established services couldn't do. I'll be honest, I found that a lack of imagination on the part of the users, but then not everybody is like me. I'm constantly looking for ways to improve what I do, both in terms of process, making it easier, but also making it faster and refining it as I go. And if that means changing something fundamental for an improvement, then I'll do it. Think calendars. Most folks, however, seem happy enough punting along with what they've got. And Google didn't and continue not to do a good job of selling what they'd got. In fact, you know, I'm not sure even Google knew what they had. The complaints seemed to centre on it being a new form of social media. But to me, it wasn't social media. It was a productivity tool. And I remember getting increasingly frustrated at people who seemed to think that every new service needed to be a social media platform. I might be a fan of screwdrivers, but I wouldn't fancy drilling a hole with one. Horses for courses. But within months, Google had pulled the plug. And the problem was Google's drive to only provide services millions of people use. Uh, they actually said they're not a niche company. And I, I found this quote. It's clear that Google doesn't want to invest in niche services, which is a big opportunity for startups. Google's CEO, Eric Schmidt, said, we want to do things that matter to a large number of people at scale. So, if less than three billion want it, we're not having it. The technology that powered Wave was rolled into Docs and various other services from Google, and the Wave platform first went read-only. I remember that. That was when I was trying to ex extract the show notes from it. And it finally vanished in 2012. And what did we do about the show notes? Well, we accepted defeat and started using Google Docs. With you hating every minute of it. And letting anyone who would listen know about it at great length. By comparison to Wave, Docs just wasn't a great experience. The formatting was strange. There was no outline of the document. We did stick with it, though, for a good number of shows. I counted the other day, 31. Before I couldn't take it anymore and move the entire process to Scrivener. Now there's an app that's a joy to use. The best part is that with a single click, Scrivener can produce the recording notes, the show notes in HTML format, the show notes in plain text, the show notes in Markdown for the website, and an email. Mm, didn't do that out of the box, though, did it? Oh, no. It took many happy hours of hacking, coding, and custom scripting persuasion, but it does now. You know, Wave actually replaced another great service that we used, 
Etherpad. Now, we used Etherpad after Google killed Google Notebook, but just before Google bought Etherpad and killed that too. It was acquired to roll the features into Wave. This is getting complicated, isn't it? But you're following along. I know you are. And we all know what happened there. The rest is history. So that was Etherpad and Wave. Two blasts from the past I have fond memories of. Well, I have if you ignore the Etherpad show note debacle. Care to explain? Oh, yes. We were using Etherpad at the time. It's so long ago, I've actually erased it from my memory. Erased? You did a lot of that. Quite. Anyway, I did something. Pressed the wrong button, something like that. I can't remember. And all the notes we'd made for the recording disappeared. Now, there should have been versions and rollback. Getting back to where we were shouldn't have been an issue. Let's just say it was. I ended up taking the next day off work to recreate the lost notes. It may have been 24 hours late, but we still got the show out in the end. Got a show out? Those were the days. My recollection is of staring at you in complete despair while screaming blue murder about your complete incompetence. Mm, that does sound very likely. Do you know there's still a version of Etherpad around? It went open source and it, it's very similar to how it was back then, but I'm not tempted back, not to a service that could vanish tomorrow. Probably a wise idea. Indeed. On to the app review, and I have a great app for you today. It's one of those apps that you don't need until you really do need it. And it's completely free. It's from the folks behind CodeKit, and it's an essential tool for anyone sharing their screen, which we have done for years and years. And increasingly, others are doing that with YouTube Live and Facebook Live streams. The app in question is Muzzle. In true advertising parlance, it does what it says on the tin. It muzzles your Mac. It's a simple Mac app to silence embarrassing notifications while screen sharing or potentially embarrassing notifications. So what it does is automatically turn on Do Not Disturb when any screen sharing starts. Now, it works with almost anything that can share your screen, and that includes Slack, Join Me, Google Hangouts, Zoom, Blue Jeans, and many, many more. Now, I know you can do this yourself. You can obviously put yourself on Do Not Disturb. But whatever can go wrong will go wrong with massive gold-plated knobs on, trust me. And it means that your notifications are at least one thing that are taken care of. Even if you feel you have zero need for this. The site is well worth a visit anyway. The site is nothing short of hysterical. It's a mock-up of the most embarrassing, cringeworthy notifications you are ever likely to see. Caveat, most of them are nowhere near safe for work. Now, you could also be screen sharing without even thinking you are. True story. I was assisting a friend with a presentation and we were using my MacBook Air for the slides. There was a whole range of other devices of mine used for many other reasons. Um, I needed to see the slides so I could move them on. She needed to move them on. She needed to see the presenter notes. So you can imagine it, it was a configuration well worthy of its own piece on the show. Now, another friend, second friend, so there was three of us, had been co-opted in for expertise with the venue's equipment. Everything was set up and the, pres the presenter got underway. Some time later, which was the point, I got an iMessage on my phone, which was next to me, from the second friend who'd moved to the back of the venue, basically asking when it would all be over. 
but possibly not put as politely as that. Mm, I saw it and I can assure the Mapbiters it wasn't. No, but it was very funny, though. Anyway, I looked over to the back of the room and I smile at him. And then I set about replying. I sent three messages and I've got a screenshot of them. This is what they say. First message. No idea. Second message. Got to be soon, though. Third message. Good job I turned off notifications on that MacBook, isn't it? I could see the blood drain from his face 30 yards away. A swift reply arrived. Oops, didn't think of that. We've both dined out on that story many times. Now, this friend, the third friend who'd sent the text in the first place, also uses his own equipment for presenters to deliver their presentations from. And believe you me, he's never forgotten to turn his notifications off since then. So the app in question is Muzzle for Mac OS and it's free from muzzleapp.com. Just give it a try. And like I say, even if you have no need for it, you need to see the site. You absolutely do need to see the site. But you have a toy to talk about too, not software, but hardware. I do. I have a hardware toy to talk about. For as long as I can remember, I've had a two monitor set up both at home and at work. There are times at work when I have to use my laptop without a second monitor, and I can tell you it's a right struggle. Yes, I know. First world problems. Cue the violins. Anyway, the training team that I work in used to have its own office, and I had a permanent desk with a three monitor setup. And when I was delivering training, our training rooms had a two monitor setup. So that was great, a great setup for delivering training. I could um, share one screen via the projector, and then the other screen would be used for my notes, my email, and probably Facebook, but don't tell my boss. When delivering online training, what I would do is I'd put the chat panel from Skype or WebEx, the system I was using to deliver the training, I'd put the chat panel on the second monitor. And that allowed me to keep my eye on questions that were coming in from the attendees of the training. Following a company reorganisation, unfortunately, we then lost our training room. So what I've had to do for the past couple of years is deliver online training from any meeting room I can find. The building that I'm in has many small meeting rooms and they can fit in one or two people. So they're designed for short meetings with just one or two people. And so there are no monitors in the meeting rooms. We did actually ask about having a second monitor put in those meeting rooms, but we were told, nothing to do with budget, we were told that no, it was designed for one-to-one or small meetings and there was no need to have a second monitor in there. But I think they've forgotten that people do actually go into those meeting rooms, which we call quiet rooms, to actually do some some work other than have meetings. So having a, a second monitor in there, an external monitor, you can just plug into your laptop would actually be ideal. But anyway, I digress. Now, when I deliver virtual training, I have just my laptop, which means I have to print my notes out. And it also means I have to keep the Skype chat window minimized and bring it up onto screen every now and again to see if there's any questions. Problem with this, it disrupts the flow of the course. Also, if I'm recording the screen, and I quite often record my uh, online training that I do, 
so that people who can't attend can watch it later. Then me flipping up the Skype chat window, that will be recorded as well. It's not a major issue, but it means that I don't have a clean recording. I did at one point think about getting an extra monitor from IT, but the problem with that is I don't have a permanent desk, as we now all hot desk. So I'd need to hide it in a cupboard and then carry it to whichever meeting room I was using for the training. And that was just too much effort. So for months, I struggled with just the laptop. Now, a few weeks ago, I was chatting to one of the guys at work. He's responsible for, in quotes, evaluating new hardware, which basically means he plays with toys all day. Doesn't need an assistant, does he? And he showed me this 15-inch flat-screen monitor. He said it would be perfect for trainers, and would I like to evaluate it? It connects via a USB cable and requires no power of its own, so I tried it that day. Propped it up against a wall in the meeting room, and it was perfect. So I spoke to the boss about it, and I was told um, that if they got me one, then they'd have to get the rest of the trainers one. And there's, I think, eight, ten trainers in our team, and there's no budget. So I decided to treat myself. I didn't buy quite the same model that we had uh, at work. I bought it via our favourite reseller, Amazon. It's an Asus 15.6 inch. It goes up to 1920 by 1080. And being only 800 grams in weight, it's easy to carry around. It actually fits nicely in my bag and comes with a, a case to protect it. I also carry in my bag a Griffin A-frame that I used to use for my iPad. And the monitor sits in that A-frame when it's in use. I really fancied trying this for a specific job. We have an iMac in our soundproof studio used for our video courses. In fact, I'm in here right now for MacBytes too. The iMac already has a second monitor and there is space for a third, but we wouldn't need three all the time. So plugging in a portable model would be perfect, which was why I wanted to try it. Mm, you couldn't get it working, though, and neither could I. It, sh it should have been so simple. should have been a case of plug and play. Turned out it needs a driver and my work Windows laptop already had the driver installed. So we downloaded and installed the driver. It needed a re reboot of the Mac and now it's working. So for anyone who needs a portable monitor, I'd have no hesitation in recommending this one, but for one issue. If you're using 10.13.4 or above, you may experience a bit of a problem. In fact, it's a lot of a problem. <laughs> oh yes <laughs> on 10.13.4 the monitor will go blank yes the update to the os broke it so it'll be unusable see what i mean a lot of a problem yes big problem yeah display link the company that make the driver have come up with a workaround they've released an updated driver and using apple airplay you can use one usb monitor in extended mode on 10.13.4 However, if you have more than one USB monitor connected to your Mac, all the others will use clone mode. The difference between extended and cloned is that with extended mode, your desktop extends across multiple monitors. And with clone mode, what's displayed on the main Mac screen will be duplicated, hence the term cloned, on the external monitor. 
There's a gag in there somewhere about sending the clones. <laughs> the Apple programming team. <laughs> I like it. Yes. Can I, um, can I sing it to the tune of sending the clowns? No, please don't sing. Carry on. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, AirPlay isn't supported on Macs prior to 2011. So to retain the ability to have an extended desktop across more than one screen, you need to stay on 10.13.3. And as I'd like to be able to use my monitor with my iMac, I've decided that for the time being, I'll stick with 10.13.3. As I recall that, I said to you, have you seen that new update? And you said, yes, I'll sort that out. And I said, no, I wouldn't if I were you. It breaks the displays. And that was how come you were able to, because if you'd updated, you know, like it likes to do it automatically. Mm. If you'd updated, it would be too late. It'd be seriously difficult to, to get it to roll back. But I seriously wonder what goes through Apple's corporate mind at times. There was a time when nothing on a Mac was compatible with anything else and it got Apple a bad reputation. And it was very bad for getting Apple's adopted in business. And I thought those days were behind us, but it seems not. Now, I know Apple and DisplayLink are working on a more permanent solution, but seriously, guys, how about doing that before you break the thing? Because you're rendering potentially thousands of pounds or dollars worth of kit unusable. What business is going to want to stick with a Mac in those circumstances? If you do it once, they could do it again. That's worrying. In fact, something bang on point has just happened. We're recording this on Saturday the 28th of July. And while you were talking there about the monitor, a mail arrived from the awesome McJim. And you were reading that rather than listening to me. I can multitask. So that's a yes then. Yes. McJim has sent us a fantastic piece, which will have pride of place in the next show. Next week? Could well be. But just before we go, don't forget you can join us live for a demo of all things Affinity Designer. We'll be live on YouTube, 14th of August, 7.45 for an 8pm start, link in the show notes. And even if you're not a designer, there is always fun to be had at watching me juggle all the kit it takes to show. My iMac screen, the iPad screen, my hand hovering meaningfully over said iPad and my Apple Pencil attempting to make magic with the iPad. So always worth coming along, if only just for a chat. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. Please send your questions, comments and queries by email to macbytesuk at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on the website or send us an audio file. You can sign up for the newsletter at macbytes.co.uk and we're on Twitter, twitter.com slash macbytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. You were very quiet today. Yes. Are you okay? No, I'm not. What's wrong? I'm exhausted. That's what. Why? Because I'm doing the work of both of us. How do you work that out? Because I'm the only one with a headphone jack. Well, there's nothing I can do about that. I know, but don't worry, I've taken care of it. You've ordered an external battery pack to keep yourself going? No, I've booked you in at the local piercing parlor. What on earth for? Let's just say when they've done with you, you'll have all the orifices you need.